Hello and hi and welcome to a very special episode of Sepad Pod. It's been a while, but I'm delighted that we are back in the saddle, back on the road, and we're here with a very special group of friends, colleagues, and Sepad fellows to discuss Saudi Arabia and football. I'm delighted that joining us today from Saudi, we have Aziz Algashian. We have Iad Al Rafai, we have Guy Burton and Francesco Belcastro in no particular order other than the order they appear on my Zoom screens. It's very <laughs> exciting to hear from everyone here about the the politics of football and the politics of Saudi's involvement in football. And I'm especially delighted that we have Guy and Francesco here who are the hosts of a brand new podcast titled Football. So Keep an eye out for that in all of your podcast feeds and all the usual places. Guy's giving me a thumbs up. I guess I've fulfilled my contractual requirements here. So why don't we um, we kick off? Thank you guys for, for joining us. We're all football fans. We're all watchers of politics across the Middle East. Aziz, let's start with you. What's going on? Why are we talking about Saudi and football right now? Well, firstly, it's good to join you, and it's good to join everyone here. I'm very happy to be uh, partaking in this. Um, and it's a really good point because, in my opinion, I don't think football really got any went anywhere in in Saudi. I think uh, it's really interesting to to see that you know football was always something very popular that people found here. Um, Probably, you know, irrespective of being beaten eight zero by the Germans in in two thousand and two, we're we're still we're still persevering forward. But uh, you know, what's very interesting about this is that football, to me, it seems that there is something between you know something the society and the government, the 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 social vision, the social desires, and the the governmental kind of trajectory all seem to be agreeing on. And that's really a space where they could all find as a commonality, which is emboldening football. You know, football is, is a language that they all speak. Oftentimes the king uh, shows up in the King's Cup, Crown Prince Cup. You know, so football is, is a fusion really between politics, society and, and identity here in Saudi. And so it's receiving this really big uh, attention. Uh, and it's something that many Saudis, many Saudis resonate with, you know, to see those stars that um, are in Europe and the biggest leagues to then host them and not only host them after their, I won't say their best days are over, but some of them are coming in, you know, arguably with, you know, and, and they're uh, in the middle of their peak of the career, I would say. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's so interesting that uh, to see this. Yeah, thanks, Aziz. I think that's that's really interesting to hear that sort of perspective. But Francesco, from a from an outsider's point of view, then I mean, Saudi has taken on more of a prominent role in the the sort of the football world, if you will. Why do you think that is, as an outsider looking in? Well, I mean. I think it's as as Aziz mentioned. There is an, there is an interesting combination of of domestic and external factors. And one thing that I wanted to add is that um, probably we're not we're not seeing anything new. It's just the scale of what you are seeing that it's that it's much bigger because you've seen so attempts to uh, do um, something similar in, uh, with the case of China a few years ago. 
Um, so in itself, um, I don't think necessarily this is something completely new. Uh, I think that people are looking at it together with, with um, other sports. Uh, let's not forget it's not only football. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think to understand the context there, you have to look at golf, you have to go look at, at Formula One, uh, Saudi Arabia and other golf states. Uh, and also perhaps we could we could then talk a bit about uh, why from a sort of well, Western perspective, well, why are people unhappy and, and, and why that's in itself very interesting. And perhaps we can build on that later. Yeah, I think there's so many different angles to, to what's going on here. And there's so much for us to, to explore. Guy, I wonder if I can come to you just briefly on the sort of the global appeal of football. I mean, Francesco has alluded to it um, and the, the Chinese efforts to do something similar. Um, goodness, what, 15 years ago, 10 years ago or so. I mean, what is it about football in particular that has prompted so many uh, influential powerhouses in global politics to embark on such a, a, an approach? Well, it's the world game now, isn't it? So I think, you know, football has uh, undergone a process of globalization. I mean, if you look at, um, you know, football in, in the case of the United Kingdom, you know, the Premier League, when it first started back in 1992-93, it was still primarily a domestic uh, product. Uh, the focus was very much on fans you know, in the UK, on building viewership in the UK. But one of the clever things that the Premier League did was to actually, you know, give away its rights and then to build on, on giving it away to actually to sell them. Uh, and it's a, it, created, it created a market of, of interest. And that's gone beyond um, just the Premier League into the world game as a whole. Obviously, you know, if you recall, I mean, we're old enough to remember when the Premier League started that the English game wasn't that great at the time. That really, if you wanted to watch you know, the glamour and excitement, you watched the Italian League, you watched you know, the Spanish La Liga. Um, they've kind of fallen by the wayside a bit, at least in terms of you know, the, the amount of revenue that they're generating and driving. But still, um, you know, the, the players you know come from there. You know, there's still sort of you know mass support, um, and certainly you know we're all involved and have worked in and worked on the Middle East. Um, you know, uh, football is is a big business in that part of the world. Um, you know, having spent time in, in Palestine, I can tell you that you know after probably after Spain, you know, the biggest audience, the biggest fan base for El Clásico between Barcelona and, and Real Madrid is in Ramallah. You know, the, the, mm-hmm. game, the week before the build-up to the game, all of the shops are selling the colours, flags, T-shirts, what have you, and everyone is in, in, in the cafes. And I think, you know, this is, this is what football is. Football has, over the last 30 years, you know, become, you know, uh, a world product, sort of, uh, yeah. Uh, it's become globalised. And so it's no surprise, therefore, that, you know, in t- if, if you want to promote yourself at home, and I think we'll get into it, we'll talk about, you know, sort of some of the domestic motivations for the Saudis to diversify their economy. They see football and sport as a way of tapping into that. So sort of evoking ideas of, of soft power and football, this global game, as you're talking about, providing reserves of, of capital and giving actors the ability to, to demonstrate their their vitality, their their influence by positioning themselves within that, that sort of global game. Iyad, this isn't just a new thing for the Saudis, though. I uh, know. Uh, indeed, but the movement and the, the base of it, 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 it's a new thing. Uh, so Saudi Arabia has historically been interested uh, regarding football. It's, uh, it's a football nation. 
Al-Ittihad uh, Club in Jeddah was established in 1927. We have uh, uh, social divisions among different classes within the society that are uh, supporting certain clubs. We have also rivalries within different cities that is attracting people and actually being a space for identity building and also for solidarity in a country that has no political uh, window of expression. Also, the Saudi uh, story is interesting in, uh, in the last 40 years due to Sahwa and its uh, effectiveness on the Saudi society by closing down all the windows of expression. Football stadiums were the only windows of expression for Saudi for young Saudis to attend to, to uh, football matches. So it, it has a very strong legacy, um, the, the, the game. Um, in comparison to America or China, I don't think there is a, a comparison because football has a strong legacy within Saudi Arabia. So this comes in hand with uh, with Vision 2030 and its approach to the kingdom uh, by, you know, uh, planning for uh, new uh, ways of expression and the new ways of, of, uh, of economy building by expanding uh, sports, uh, I mean, sports uh, events and also entertainment events. This should be also uh, related to Vision 2030. So we shouldn't approach sports investments outside of Vision 2030 as with. So the old is new and the new is is old, as you're sort of saying. I think it's interesting. Uh, indeed. Yeah, that the, the club you mentioned is older than the, the Saudi state itself. Uh, indeed, the Saudi state was established in 1932 and it had been established in 1927. And they always actually brag about that. They call themselves Nadil Wapan, which means the nation club. And they have, you know, big, big brag, bragging, you know, context in Saudi Arabia between clubs. So that's another interesting case to be discussed later. Yeah, we'll get onto that, and I'd like to unpick the the Vision Twenty Thirty stuff in a in a little bit as well, because I think there's a lot going on there. But Francesco, coming back to you, this whole sort of Saudi involvement in in football and the involvement at such a scale seemed to sort of take on a new lease of life with Cristiano Ronaldo. Is that? Fair to say, or do you think there was there was another point that really pushed the Saudi League to um, to the attention of of many? I think the the Cristiano Ronaldo acquisition was a turning point, at least from a from a kind of Western football fan point of view. Um, now, obviously, I think if you if you look at sort of the um, sport aspect of it, there were actually acquisitions that were more important than Cristiano Ronaldo because he's towards the end of his career so to me like I don't know Ruben Neves or players who are in the late 20s and, and would have could have gone to any European club from, from a sport point of view are more important um, because it means that the league is attracting like top talent uh, yeah. that, that could be going anywhere I mean Cristiano Ronaldo's career was if not over towards the end um, but in terms of the sort of uh, public impact I think that Cristiano Ronaldo was um the acquisition of Cristiano Ronaldo was a big turning point. Uh, now there is an aspect there that that seems to be uh, um, more um, important is the fact that there is kind of I mean, so the more 
players of a certain age the league manages to attract, less it becomes a kind of risky move for players to, to go there because if you had done something like that a few years ago, people would have looked at you and said, okay, that's kind of the end of your career. But now, because of the, the sheer number of, of sort of top-level players that have gone there, I think it, gives, it, it, it has given the league a lot of credibility. Um, so I think it's, it started with Cristiano Ronaldo in terms of public impact. That was a turning point. But from a sports point of view, some of the recent acquisitions, I would say, are more, are more important. Yeah, that's interesting. And yeah, Fabinho's yeah, signature last night was very important and very significant socially and also internationally. Fabinho is a 29 years old midfielder, so he is uh, within that you know class of players that can still give more than five years of playing. Yeah, yeah that's that's really interesting, Guy. Just tell us who who else. In case people have missed it, who else has gone to the Saudi League? Who else are we should, should we uh, well, be aware of? Yeah, well, Benzema has left um, Real Madrid to go to uh, a Saudi club. Um, and I believe in the Premier League, we've also got Riyad um, Mahrez, who's left Man City. Who's, but that would, these kind of make a bit of sense as well, because they've kind of got the cultural background as well mm-hmm. to go to Saudi. Arabia. But what I think is also really interesting, because t- I touched upon the, the question of globalization of football. I was struck, um, I don't know if you're familiar with DH Gates, which is you know, sort of a Chinese business-to-business wholesale retailer, and they basically sell, they flog any, any manner of football shirts, mostly Premier League, mostly La Liga Italian. But I've now noticed that they're actually starting to sell Saudi football team shirts, you know, yeah. with the right name and number on the back as well so clearly it's you know it's it's reaching you know a wider audience uh, at least the, as you as you're asking francesco yeah, yeah i just wanted to go on expand, if, if, if please yeah i just want to expand expand upon this so i when i'm sometimes watching cnn uh and seeing watching the the sports uh broadcast or the sports show for the first time, I think ever, because of Cristiano Ronaldo, they brought Al Nasser team there. So, and then all of a sudden, it's like Al Nasser scored this. Al Nasser, it wasn't just Ronaldo; it was the team that he played for, Al Nasser, and that's precisely what you know they are after. Mm-hmm. And you know, what's interesting was that also there was a, a very, uh, I think, well-known Saudi commentator called Ali Shahabi. Yesterday, was interviewed by uh, Al Arabiya, mm-hmm. um, the Saudi, of course, outlet. And he was told, he's like, man, uh, everybody's talking about the sports washing, what's happening. And he doesn't hide the fact that, okay, this is really about image also. That, you know, this is, we're not hiding this fact. But he's saying, well, who, who doesn't do that too? Everyone is doing that too. You know, it, since it, what was mentioned here, it's a globalized sport. It, it, so, and it was the pr- Premier League, as, you know, Guy said earlier as well, is that Premier League that we're taking sometimes, I mean, I think you, you were mentioning how, it wasn't the same as the Premier League. I'm sorry, the Italian League wasn't the same as the Premier League. But the Premier League were also taking good players from the Italian League and the Spanish League and other places, and they were making, kind of building their, their brand. And Guardiola said this too. It's like you say, the new Saudi League is changing the contours and the game within the game. It's changing the contours of, of world football. And we have, we're going to have to see this. Now, this kind of led straight into... Um, the political discourse, which is look at how Saudi Arabia now is changing the world. 
aren't we people that are making waves now? Where the world is now coming to us and that we are now becoming a haven, a hub where people want to come here. And that's precisely what the elite wanted. It's interesting you say that, Aziz, and this, this talk of image and buying into narratives, I think, is, is really valuable. I just checked, and Cristiano Ronaldo, for instance, has 600 million followers on Instagram. And I think buying into that type of support base is tapping into a pretty, um, a pretty serious pool of, of, of capital. And of course, we yeah. know there's the big debate, the sort of the tribal, dare I say, sectarian debate, Ronaldo and Messi and everything that that brings. So there's a and there's a, an interesting sort of spin-off of that between the Saudi League and the US League and yeah. all manner of interesting dynamics there. But yeah, do you want to say something quickly before I talk just, about to add, money? Yeah. Yeah, just add something very small regarding uh, uh, media coverage of Saudi League. So uh, the Saudi League will start in the next 15 days and already around 72 worldwide outlets are asking for the uh, uh, the right to broadcast the Saudi League. So in comparison with the last year, they already had four international outlets. So imagine that difference. Mm. Go ahead. So that's that's huge when you factor in that that the Saudi League, according to global rankings, was somewhere in the mid fifties is the most competitive league in the world, or perhaps should say least competitive league in the world, and yet it's attracting such global attention. So I mean that's it's fascinating. It's really, really interesting. And why then would someone like Jordan Henderson, for example, uh, a, a bastion of, of Liverpool and English football, who's still got a couple of years left at the top of his career, go to Saudi, take such a dramatic step down in the quality of league? Um, I mean, I'm sure there must be several hundred thousand reasons for that. Francesco, please. I'm glad you mentioned the Jordan Anderson case because that's so interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, one answer to that, a simple one, could could be money, but I think there is more than that. Um, yeah. The case of Jordan Anderson is a very interesting one because um, he's been very political at different stages in his career, yeah. um, and in particular, has shown um, support towards the LGBTQ um, community, um, famously wearing the the armband. Um, now, obviously, just being really criticized now um, because Saudi Arabia is seen as a country that hasn't got a great record uh, on this particular issue, and, and perhaps uh, um, rightly so. Um, so, I think that that it also raises quite quite a lot of interesting questions in relation to um, the issue of sort of um, football players as kind of well, political activists or, or or their kind of political views, and obviously. I don't want to say that that applies only to Saudi Arabia because you know other players are going to places where that probably don't didn't really uh, where the political culture or, or the law didn't exactly align with the principles that they have um, supported and expressed to before. But in this sense, I think the Jordan Anderson case it's it's way more than you know he's gone there for uh, for money. I mean, there's, there's going to be part of it, but I'm sure uh, there there'll be other other um, other things as well involved with that. Aziz, you want to add something to this then? Yes, yes, I would actually. I, I just wanted to, to say 
that um, it's very interesting to see how football has been perceived in Saudi Arabia and the evolution of it. So uh, just to share an anecdote, so I have family that actually paid for big teams. So my, the last person was called Fahad al-Shayyan, maybe, maybe uh, Iyad knows. He, he played in 94 World Cup team that was fielded in Saudi and scored the, the goal against Sweden. So they used to call him Concord because he was very fast, apparently. And then very much like myself. <laughs> and, and then, uh, <laughs> but then my uncle played in Al-Shabaab 50 odd years ago or something. But I remember my grandfather being so disappointed that he was, he was like, what? Look at, we, we're, and then I think he got a red card for hitting a referee or something. And then um, he, <laughs> he, I probably wasn't disappointed about that. He was disappointed that we were perceived and mentioned and associated with being players, la'iba, as someone who's just wasting time, you know, and that has evolved. So just as much as I think, you know, we have uh, something to offer the world and we're entering into the world, the world does also, you know, these players and that, that symbolic power and the fact that their admiration coming here makes it even, you know, the fact that this is a profession that's actually being more respectable now. You know, that this is a respect a, a profession that's being treated more seriously. And uh, since the player is here, and I wonder if there's a self-orientalism here. You know, I wonder if there's a little bit of, we, we require the game to be respectful when people from the Premier League or abroad to come here. And I think this, there's an issue that raises these, you know, very interesting question, but certainly the evolution of the identities are, are taking place. So then I wonder if, if this, going back to Henderson, is something that he's considered that maybe his presence can be a catalyst for some type of osmosis glacial reform. I mean, just as a, a quick tangent, because I want to go back to the money, because um, there's a lot to talk about here. But I wonder what what scope is there? I'm directing this at at Iyad and, and Aziz, of course. What scope is there for for players to have political expressions? We know that Jordan Henderson has got this this history of of supporting, yeah. in particular, particular groups, which is obviously mm. deemed to be a political act. What would happen, for instance, if someone in the Saudi league were to make a political statement whilst playing football? Uh, well, uh, it really depends on the political statement yeah, sure. that they are making. Uh, so, uh, uh, as, as I mentioned before, uh, it, it's, it's a main window of expression. So, anything that affects the football discourse within Saudi Arabia would be perceived as politically affected because it affects the society. I've watched uh, an interview with Jose Mourinho uh, mm. speaking about his experience. He spent around six months in Saudi Arabia in 2019, and he spoke about the new academies for, for girls' uh, football. And also, I've, I've seen the another interview with Cristiano Ronaldo speaking about empowering a younger generation in Saudi Arabia, especially female, uh, you know, sports uh, players. So that might be a societal area where uh, players can affect, you know, a more opening up of the Saudi society. I would, I would, I don't know about politic, uh, political, you know, uh, 
gestures, but I know that social gestures mm. are accepted within the Saudi mm. League, especially those gestures, you know, that are pushed by the government agenda and pushed by Vision 2030 uh, agenda. Yeah, I guess that would be harmonical, small P rather than big P yeah. political. Indeed, yeah. Sorry, Aziz, you were saying yeah, I don't something. Think, uh, anybody, no, no, I'm sorry. I mean, I don't think uh, anybody would be upset if, um, you know, uh, Jordan Henderson had a, had, a, had a T-shirt that said, uh, the hell with the Houthis or the hell with the, you know, I, I, it's a political impression that, you know, they, 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 I think it will, will be acceptable and, 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 and very much admired. But the reality is Saudi football or the Saudi Football League, they've been very, uh, they stayed away from political impress, uh, expressions with the exception of um, a decisive storm and the war against the Houthis in, in 2015. For me, that was very interesting to see football players and, 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 and others around. And the, and the, and the, because in Saudi, what's very interesting is that, maybe Ed also could speak to this, is that they, they, they started to have an active, um, uh, allow allow audiences and fans to be more active in their expression with these with these uh, teams. So, for example, uh, if a team won, they'll they'll get loads of camera uh, clips from uh, the fans of that team, and in them you see political expressions. So, a lot of these these aspects of saying and these political expressions, in other words, it's a space that's been created now. And that space is being used in a way to say how we love everything here, how everything is great and how everything's fantastic. And, you know, and how, uh, okay, well, thank you. And I remember this very vividly. Thank you to our so- soldiers on, on, on the borders in Yemen for keeping us mm-hmm. and maintaining our, our freedom. And, uh, you know, and for me, I'll be very honest. It sounded, it sounded very interesting. It was like, this is the first time I've seen Saudi actually having a, this political campaign mm-hmm. almost. And it was facilitated by through this very, you know, indirect way of trying to get people to participate. Uh, it's really interesting and sort of goes back to what Iyad was saying about the historical space of the football stadium for people to mingle and to express themselves politically and socially. Guy, you wanted to, to come in? Well, yes, actually it's more of a question to Aziz because he's talking about you know, political expression in the stadiums, particularly in light of the you know, the campaign in, in, in Yemen. And I wonder, obviously, given that, uh, you know, you are organizing this uh, conversation, given that it's under the auspices of SEPAD, which is about sectarianism, yeah. to what extent, you know, religious difference and sectarianism sort of, you know, get is manifest in political expression in Saudi football, whether in the stadium or, you know, around, around the, the sport. In my opinion, and I, 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 I'll share my opinion, and I wonder if Yad could also share share his. But in my opinion, I haven't seen a sectarian, an explicit sectarian uh, expression. Uh, I've seen a unified expression support for Saudi against kind of what was taking place against who were perceived as the Houthi rebels. So a pure political kind of expression, but uh, you know, any explicit. Um, sectarian articulation uh, I personally haven't seen. Yeah, indeed. I would add uh, more, Aziz, that the 
captain of the Saudi national team during those years was Taysir Al-Jasim, who yes. is from Qatif. He is a Shia player uh, in Ahli Jeddah club. Hussein Al-Sadiq, the historical uh, goalkeeper of Saudi football in the 1990s, was also from Qatif. Uh, so football really bypassed Uh, sectarian and also racial elements within the yeah. society. So the most celebrated uh, uh, Saudi players are coming from, you know, African descent. So that yeah. really bypass every societal and and also um, sectarian ide- identity uh, by, uh, I mean, uh, not rivalries, but um, divisions. That's interesting. Really interesting. In terms of, of of football in the UK, for instance, I'm thinking of the the Rangers Celtic rivalry, which is deeply vitriolic and often deeply sectarian. Um, so it's interesting yeah. hearing hearing that in the context of comparative politics. There's something to be explored there. I think, Francesco. Let's come back to you. Um, we talk about money. Money is a big part of what's going on here, and we've sort of touched a little bit on um, on on the globalization of football. But I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about how the Saudis are financing this. I mean, where's where's the money coming from here? Well, I, w- I would say that Aziz and Iyad are better placed than me uh, to answer where the money is coming from. Uh, perhaps I'll, I'll leave it to them, and then I can add a few things about. Uh, what the, the impact on the money on, on the European game is, if, if you're happy with that, Simon. If you want to duck the question, that's fine, Francesco. No problem yeah, at all. Yeah, that's exactly my intention. Yeah, I, I don't think um, yeah, you, you'd be a, Francesco would be a good goalkeeper but by, by ducking that. <laughs> but it was, it was, it was good. It was good. But, but I, in my opinion, just quickly, I think, so before they made this pitch, They privatized which pitch? The, yeah, so we talking sorry, about football pitch. Then, or yeah, yeah, pitch? yeah, the, the yeah. political the, the pitch to to enter into this um, PIF PIF yes, and the, the PIF pitch basically. So they nor they I normalize. I'm, I'm, my mind is on Saudi Arabia and Israel all the time. They, they so they privatized these teams and they put them and they kind of allocated. Aziz, just uh, for a second, sorry to stop you. Yeah. There are people listening who may not know what the PIF is, and they may not know which teams have been taken over by the PIF. Who are we talking about oh. here? So the private investment fund, the Saudi-owned uh, public uh, private investment fund of the Saudi government, uh, that basically used the wealth of the government in order to enter and invest into um uh the private entities and and invest to generate wealth for, for the government and one of their their ideas is that they wanted to privatize some of these saudi teams because a lot of these saudi teams they seem to be constrained by a lot of football politics within saudi arabia they were they, you know there were these rivalries and they were very much dependent on the state um they were also given a lot of promises that they could never fund. So the heads of these, these uh, football teams, the presidents of these football teams were elected uh, or chosen. Uh, and then they would sign players 
And some of these players stay 10 months, sometimes not even being able to, to get paid. So there was an issue. There was a crisis that was taking place. There was a systemic failure. And so now Saudi players wouldn't want to stay, let alone bringing others. So with this public investment fund and how Saudi purchased some of the teams in the public investment fund, uh, I'm sorry, so, uh, investment fund purchasing some of the teams in the Saudi league. So the four that they purchased was Al-Ahli, Al-Ittihad, Al-Nasr, and Al-Hilal. And I think these are the four kind of original teams that they, they, they bought. They allowed other teams to be bought by kind of other governmental entities. Uh, al was bought by Sabic. Yeah. Uh, yeah, see, uh, by Sabic. Uh, I think Al-Ula. Yeah. Uh, but, but, you know, something like that. Something Al-Shabaab. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting. And that, that was the mechanism that funneled all this wealth. And as a result, now you have direct investment from the private investment fund of Saudi Arabia to these teams. Hence why the scale that you know, Francesco was talking about that went up very quickly. Uh, it went up very sharply because now it's, it's, it's owned by the government directly. And how, how much is this PIF worth? Seven trillion, I believe. No, no, no. It's worth a lot, a lot more. But I, I think when I heard one of the reports, it's it's, um, it's around seven, seven. Yeah, if Aramco only by itself is one trillion dollars, so imagine what the other yeah. companies. Yeah, can. It's it's it's, it's, it's a lot. Just a, a lot. little sum, then a little bit of rainy day yeah, money. My guy, yeah. your your hand was up, please. So, I mean, this is, and I think what's, it's, what's interesting is to link what Aziz was talking about, you know, in the wider uh, discussion about economic diversification in the Gulf. And because this is often how uh, sort of Saudi interest in football and actually sport more generally is, you know, can be understood that, you know, these are countries, not just Saudi Arabia, but others like Kuwait, Oman, Qatar, who are, you know, facing a new challenge, which is that we're coming to the end of the hydrocarbon you know, era, uh, and they're trying to look at what do we do, you know, not necessarily when hydrocarbons run out, but when you know, we move to different alternative energies. Um, so they are looking to use these, these, these sovereign wealth funds as a way of, um, you know, diversifying their economy, you know, building up uh, new sectors, new industries, uh, new economic opportunities so that they can move away from this. Now, what's interesting about this is that this is a lot of the, the, the conversation is going on in the media about this, you know, sort of linking uh, Saudi investments in these clubs, Saudi investments in players, trying to attract interest in, in, into, sport, into sport and football, more particularly, you know, through this diversification scheme associated with Agenda 2030. But the big problem, of course, is that Agenda 2030 is not uh, a new idea. You know, diversification efforts have been tried in Saudi Arabia and the Gulf you know, consistently over the last 50 years. Um, and they've never yet worked. And that's, so there's a problem because a lot of the time uh, the money is, you know, funneled, you know, into these uh, economic areas, into these companies, into, into different sectors, but they don't become sustainable in themselves. And that's what you need. And we're here we are talking about, um, you know, the, the PIF, you know, investing in these 
firms. So we have absolutely silk clubs, but we have absolutely no idea that this is actually going to become uh, self-sustaining. Um, and that's a, that's, a, that's a big red flag at the moment. And so, you know, certainly, of course, in previous diversification attempts, um, the Saudis and, and other Gulf states have looked to that there is no blueprint. They're all trying trying new things, you know, trying to explore what the next big thing is. But so far, it hasn't worked. And so this is this is something that we, we keep, I don't see enough conversation about. Um, so we're constantly talking about, yes, new money and massive investments. But is that investment going to, to last? Because you said at the start, um, you know, obviously, there's, it's slightly different, uh, the, the reasons for that. But there was massive Chinese investment, mm-hmm. you know, into the global game about a decade ago and the Chinese Super League. And that's just collapsed. Um, and so are we going to just see another repeat of this for the Saudis? What is it about, you know, in current investments into the Saudi, into the Saudi game that's going to make it different from the past? We've touched upon it a little bit in relation to, uh, you know, some bringing in players that are sort of at the peak of their careers as opposed to at the end. But is this actually going to lead to a change in, in, in the Saudi, uh, direction economically as well as politically? Maybe. So just to add on this, Simon, uh, on Guy's point, uh, the new strategy for the Saudi Pro League uh, was announced two days ago. Uh, This strategy is to nurture young talent and to secure leading international players and improve club governance. Uh, This new, uh, I mean, this new agenda would uh, move the clubs from the PIF to be self-sustained self-sustained clubs or companies um it's a very interesting one I, i'll try to share it on my twitter later yeah thanks yeah guy and if i can also just add this because it's not just i mean obviously the, the focus is on the economic diversification but also some of the justification as he had pointed out is to you know help develop domestically you know sort of a, a young saudis health uh, you know encourage them to become more active which is fascinating because this is the same conversation that was taking place a decade and a half ago when London was bidding for the Olympics, Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. somehow, you know, you bring in elite sports into London for two, three weeks, and suddenly we're going to have a legacy of, you know, children running around in, you know, playgrounds and doing sports and becoming fit and not being obese anymore. Um, And yet, (laughs) the decade after the London Olympics, we saw... Play fields being closed down. We saw PE lessons being shut down, and very little change in terms of sort of you know health opportunities for young people. So you know this. So I'm seeing the same language being trotted out. But the question that I'm I'm curious about is what makes it different this time. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's maybe something that that we'll have to keep an eye on moving forward. The extent to which this is different. I mean, it does. It does feel different to the the Chinese Super League. Um, it feels substantially different in terms of infrastructure, in terms of the narratives around it, in terms of how it's been put together, in terms of the sheer number of players in the in sort of the peak years of their careers making the move to Saudi rather than the sort of the outliers going to China for 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 what were huge sums of money. Um, back then and still are now for that matter. Um, so yeah, it, it feels a little bit different. But Francesco, on the money front, and you can't duck this one, what does the establishment of this 
this Saudi league mean for for Europe? Um, Pep Guardiola's made a comment about it changing the the scene, changing the landscape. But economically, what does it do? So I think there are two aspects to this. One is the, the sort of our podcast is going to be called "Where Football Meets Politics." So I think in a way you can kind of look at the, at the the football aspect of it and the politics aspect of it, and they're both really interesting and obviously they're connected. So from a football point of view, things have already changed because whenever there is a such a kind of big um, pulling attraction that that brings players, that gives players another option in terms of uh, um, contracts, in terms of where where to go, um, I think it already creates creates a kind of change in in in, in the in the market. Uh, now, obviously, it depends a lot um, on on how long this is going to last. And I, I have a feeling that this is not like the Chinese league. I think the investments are way more uh, long term. So I think it's from a football point of view, already a lot has changed. Then the other question, and perhaps we can then uh, talk about sport washing, and, and I don't know who wants to take this, um, it's how successful this is going to be from a political point of view. Um, Wait, and sports and politics I, don't mix. Sorry? <laughs> I thought sports and politics don't mix. I thought that they were two separate entities. So I I have written a few things on, on the topic, and I start every article by contesting this thing that sports and politics don't, make, don't mix, because I think that you know, everything that's, that's popular, everything that is important, it, it's a political thing. I agree and with sport, you, by the way. Football in particular is, was yeah. that? I agree with you. I'm just being provocative. Oh, thanks. Thanks. <laughs> thanks, Simon. So, I mean, back to that point. So I think I find the concept of sport washing, uh, which for, for those who have not uh, encountered, and I think it's most people have by now, the idea of using um, events, tournaments, recruiting athletes for the purpose of, uh, painting a, a particular political picture and, and, and in this case, allegedly hiding uh, a violation of human rights. So this is what sport washing is. I find these a bit of a reductive concept to describe what's going on because it seems to me there's much more than that. Um, also, it seems to me that it's very naive that a lot of people, seem, a lot of observers seem to, seem to realize that it's going on just now uh, and Saudi Arabia is doing it because obviously if you want to use sport washing, which they find problematic, we we could mention twenty cases in the last yeah. twenty years of of that. Um, so yeah, from the political point of view, I think it's uh, uh, it's yet to see how successful this is. Um, I would kind of expand. I think it's more is a bit more than sport washing. That's that's what that's where I would that's my starting point there. It it feels as if whenever there's something new that that disrupts the status quo and in this case the status quo I mean sort of the global football field if you will the the, the world of global football whatever you want to call it the arrangement of clubs and institutions whenever there's a disruption in that there is a great deal of, of pushback and maybe this is just the deeply conservative aspect of human nature that's resistant to change but in this case with the with the speed at which the Saudi league has has established itself as one of the most prominent venues, be it through uh, the financial resources available or be it through a new challenge or exposure to a new culture, there's been a lot of criticism. Criticism um, that has been labelled sports washing. Some of the criticism has focused 
on tropes that have been Orientalist, I would argue. Some of it has been deeply xenophobic. Some of it has been Islamophobic. But there's been a huge amount of criticism here. Some of it, I think, is perhaps fair. Some of it, I think, is deeply unfair. But what are these... (laughs) What are these points of criticism then, someone? I mean, what? why is this league so so controversial? Uh, Francesco, please. So I'll throw just two points. One, it's the kind of football purist uh, uh, view, which is, uh, I think, perhaps sometimes uh, slightly, as you mentioned, um, orientalist, if not racist, that kind of football... Uh, uh, the heart of football belongs in some countries and not in some others. Uh, and so people are upset about the fact that a league that is a non-European league can uh, compete with European leagues. I think this is something that maybe not exactly in these terms, but has been underpinning some of the conversation among sport fans. And the idea that, you know, these leagues is, is sort of a fake thing from a sport point of view um, has been, I think, has been very strong. Uh, um, and I think that, from my point, from my point of view, that's an unfair criticism because it, it's not the first time that the sort of global uh, uh, pendulum of football, if you want to go that way, has shifted. So that's kind of a sport criticism, which I think has been very strong, has been underpinning a lot of the other discourse uh, on the on the Saudi League. Then I think uh, there is the other aspect, which is the kind of more politics one, which is of okay, what are they trying to hide? Why is it that uh, uh, they're investing so much. Suddenly, uh, now there's, there's all discussion about um, current Saudi foreign policy, um, the, the Yemen conflict. So I think this is connected and, and people try to bring this together. So I kind of, I, I would say, and I don't know if the colleagues agree or not, I would look at this as kind of two separate sets of criticism and, and, and within these there are kind of different versions. Uh, and perhaps you could say that, that the second is a bit more legitimate than, than the first which I find often a bit distasteful. I think distasteful is perhaps a little um, little soft in, in some of these cases. There's, there's also, yeah, I'll come to you in a second, if I may. There's also this, this idea that, that I think some people have, and it's come up when discussing the World Cup, the idea that, that FIFA presents an idea that the World Cup should be should be given to states as a way of expanding, pushing the boundaries of football and the borders of football and trying to open the world and societies up to, to, to football. But then there's also an argument that says, and this was made when discussing the, the previous World Cup in Qatar, that states should be held to a certain standard of human and political rights in order to be, quote-unquote, rewarded with the World Cup. And I think that plays out in some way, shape or form here that because the Saudi state doesn't conform with a set of normative values that many in the West hold to be um, the, the type of values that, that all should be upholding, some rightly, some perhaps more contested, then I think that's one of the other reasons why this has proved so so controversial. Thinking particularly of of the Jordan Henderson stuff on LGBTQ plus communities and, and inclusion. So I think that plays into it somewhere. Um, 
Guy, is, is there other non-Saudi in this conversation? Do you want to add anything before we hear from um, Iyad and, and Aziz who are thinking long and hard here? Yeah, I mean, you, but one of the points you just made about um, you know, sort of FIFA wanting to expand the game and to you know to bring it you know, to make the, the game more more global. Um, you know, what is striking, of course, is that you know when we think about the the World Cup, the most recent one, which took place in Qatar, I think a lot of these, these the discussions that we've just been talking about, you know, were not present until Qatar won it. I think you know they were so focused on winning it that they never really anticipated the kind of you know, backlash that they were going to get, you know, particularly when it came to things like, you know, workers' rights, um, in particular, uh, work, migrant workers and, you know, having to build this infrastructure. Um, and so this is, but this is also something I think that, you know, now they're out there in the, in the, in the public domain. I think also the, the way that, you know, Qatar and Russia at the same time both got the World Cup back in 2010, you know, raised a lot of questions about, you know, how these decisions were made. It's also, I think, uh, probably the last time that you had, um, you know, the, the the idea of hosting the World Cup, you know, sort of prestige tournaments, you know, wanting to build from scratch. I mean, you know, now we're sort of at a we're at a, a you know flex po- a, a flexing point where you know which countries can afford to host these kind of events in the future because they are massive undertakings. Um, you know, the Saudis have actually expressed also indicated their interest in hosting the 2030 World Cup, mm-hmm. although. That seems to have sort of had some sort of a bit of a backlash, and so they're now delaying the decision making on that until next year. Um, and also, I think also there's a problem, of course, of timing because if the Saudis were to get it, it would it would be less than two World Cups since the Middle East, Middle East last had it. So it doesn't really help the sort of the FIFA claim of you know getting the game around the world. Yeah, I, uh, there's so much to unpack with that and with FIFA, which is probably another discussion. Um, but so let, let's park the FIFA point. Yeah, let's come to you then. Um, what are your thoughts then from from someone inside and simultaneously outside the kingdom on on these these charges, the allegations, reflections? Well, you see, uh, uh, with every political move or economic move, there comes, you know, an aspect of image enhancement or of image creation or recreation or rebranding. I wouldn't call it washing because washing, you know, has, has a negative connotation to it. There is something dirty to be washed. Why it, it is going to be washed and for whom? So that might be a self-centric point of departure from Western audience that Saudi Arabia is washing something to please them. But maybe from a Saudi point of view, it's, it's different than that. It's a, it's a developmental process in which sports is being part of a national agenda to enhance the country's image, as well as its you know uh, place in the international community. So that's the only you know take that I would add to the discussion of sports watch uh, washing. That it's it's um, mostly self-Western centric than, than, you know, uh, it's it not analyzing the world, but analyzing how the world is interacting with the West. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Yad. Aziz, anything you'd yes. like to add to Yeah, yeah, I, I would. There is, I mean, I'm a very big believer in the principle of not being more Catholic than the Pope. 
And the Saudis themselves have said, okay, that we are not the beacon of human rights. That we kind of understand that, okay, there are some standards that, that there just isn't, that we don't abide by in other places. But what they are against is the fact that when there are other cases around the world who are doing far more crimes, but they receive less attention, this is something that will then provoke some sort of response. And I think for me, so, so they may, so, you know, they make, they, they don't hide this fact, you know, they don't hide the fact that there is this uh, area of development that requires to be achieved still, but they're not far off this, this topic of human rights, et cetera. Yeah, they'll always say they're heading towards that way. But I think for me, it's not more, it's, it's far more about diversification of the economy it's far more about attracting people to Saudi Arabia. It's far more about becoming an international hub. It's far more about projecting that Saudi Arabia is now a global player, a hub, than it is about hiding and pleasing people. Because the reality is, and I think that the, the, the ruling elite have sensed this, is that you know whether or not our image is not okay in your ends of the woods, in your political capitals, many people will still want to do business with us. And I think this is the, this is what they sensed, and that's why they say no. You know, I'm I'm I I'm, I will continue with this project, and uh, we don't see why we shouldn't because it's not you know this is damned if we do, damned if we don't kind of thing. So this is the perception that's being happening here, and they, there is an, an Arabic saying of um, you know the the camel caravan will continue, but the barks are still uh, the, the dogs are still going to be barking. So this is something they will always say, as in, you know, that, that there's a lot of barking on the side, but, but the caravan is still walking. This caravan is still wa- going through. It, it, basically, nothing is going to stop us, and we don't care if people are going to make noises or not. Well, thank you for sharing that. I, I like that as, a, as an idiom. I imagine <laughs> it sounds a little better in Arabic, though. <laughs> yeah. so, English is not bad. <laughs> <laughs> not bad. So... Guys, we've been talking for for a long time now, and we could double this in length. We've not really spoken about Kylian Mbappe, who may or may not be going to to the Saudi League for the most amount of money that anyone can ever imagine a footballer earning in a single second or something silly. We've not talked about Saudi investment in Newcastle. Um, We've not talked about all the various complexities of of um, teams in the Premier League being owned by golf rulers and teams across Europe having close ties. So there's a complex dynamic here that maybe requires a follow-up to look at how regional dynamics are interacting with local dynamics in the Gulf or Gulf politics and European politics slash European sport are playing out. And there's so much more to, to tease out in much more detail. So I think I'm going to put the market down that we've got to do a follow-up and perhaps even a follow-up when we are um, a few months into the Saudi season. But for now, all that remains for me to do is to say a huge thank you to my wonderful guests, Francesco Belcastro, Aziz Algashian, Guy Burton and Ied Al-Rafai. And to say, Francesco, Guy, get the football podcast out soon please really looking forward to to hearing that one and as always thank you to you for listening